Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Thursday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
hello, hello, hello. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am that woman whose voice you all seem to enjoy listening to. Live. Well, well, well. Today I am here with another favorite re-airing episode, A Conversation. This one was suggested very specifically and very vehemently by Michaela. That's right. It's my episode with author and poet and general badass Nikita Gill about mythology and rewriting women's stories and very specifically Medusa and colonialism. This was such a fun conversation to have and basically made Nikita and I friends, which is a win if you ask me. It's definitely time it showed up in your feeds again, almost two years after it first aired. What is time? Gods. So enjoy. It's so good. And again, don't forget to ask your questions for the new year Q&A episode, mythsbaby.com slash questions. Ask them before the end of the year so I can get moving on that episode. Thanks, nerds. This is episode 104, Medusa, Colonialism, Reimagining Goddesses and Monsters with Nikita Gill. Nikita Gill, author of, amongst other things, The Great Goddesses, which is just so exciting. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. <laughs> this is one of my favorite podcasts. So I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> I Yeah, that, that still fully blows my mind. Actually, your book was gifted to me by a listener of the podcast. And I, I read it when I first got it. And then, you know, it's been a couple of years now almost. And mm-hmm. I went back to it before we were chatting. And I guess the person had actually gone into the shop to buy it versus doing mm-hmm. it online because she'd like handwritten this note on the bookmark in it that I, I didn't remember. Oh. And I know it was so sweet. I think her name was Chloe. Of course, I left the bookmark across the room, but I'll edit this in case I got it wrong. But it was like, I couldn't stop thinking of you while I was reading this <laughs> book. So I had to had to give you one. It's just so lovely. Oh. My readers are sweethearts. Like, I, I'm telling you, I, I know, like, a lot of authors must say this about their readers, but I swear to God, I have the kindest audience. Like, they just, they, I, I, when I meet them, and when I, well, pre-COVID, when we used to be able to meet people at, like, your mm-hmm. readings and stuff, <laughs> people would come to me and tell me, like, these beautiful stories about how they found my books and how the books helped them. And, like, I'd just be sitting there like a puddle of tears going, really? <laughs> it means that much to you? <laughs> I equally have just the absolute nicest listeners in the world. And I think we have a lot of crossover because of our content. So it makes sense. We have just equally lovely people. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Especially because it's funny, like, writing this book, felt so much like writing a love letter to the gods in so many ways. And then after the book, like I said to you um, on on DMs, I feel like I learned a lot because a lot of um, really amazing classic classicists kind of reached out to me to talk to me about the book and even about the content that they were like, oh, this is slightly problematic because, you know, this, that and the other. And it was really nice to learn from them as opposed to just learning from books you know what I mean like especially because classics uh the books that you read are written predominantly by men and like the translations are also by men and like 
<laughs> so so you so you don't even realize how problematic it is until someone else explains to you that I know you thought what you did in this and it's just it's one particular myth it's the Persephone myth mm-hmm. right yeah. where um Demeter is like the 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 mother who kind of stifles her and Persephone chooses her own um path and I kind I I I went in because my mom is a bit like stifling I really went down that route so much because I was like I get that I get the idea of choosing your own path and like becoming this like queen of hell and that really appealed to me but then someone reached out to me who is a um, classicist and who's amazing and she was like I don't know whether you realize how misogynistic that interpretation of is to Demeter and I didn't think and it was really humbling to like sit there and listen and go oh you're right you're absolutely right. And the idea of taking away the the survival aspect of Persephone, that she was a survivor of, of a lot of trauma, of that kidnapping mm-hmm. and going, no, she chose that. You're taking away a narrative from survivors. And as a survivor, that I that really clicked with me. And I think that learning process is so important when you read or do anything with the classics, you know, and being able to go, yeah, I messed up. I was wrong. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, so, you're describing so many experiences I've had doing this podcast. Mm-hmm. For me, it's always just been a lot of growth in terms of how I tell the stories and what I focus on. And and even just, I think for me too, like I I did my degree in classics, but I didn't really intend to use it. And so I didn't dive too deeply into things. Mm. And And then now I'm doing this and I started out really like base level, just like overview of of the stories. And then now, of course, you know, like I'm four years in and I'm, reading as many books as I can possibly find on a story in order to tell it. And, you know, something that would have taken me at one episode at the beginning is taking me four or five episodes (laughs) now. And so for me, it's a more, it's like, it's the same kind of level of like constant learning and taking in all this new information, but I just go like, I have to make it the most accurate thing in the (laughs) world. And all these different sources say all these different things and all the, you know, and it's, it's, of course, it's almost impossible to do accuracy in Greek myth. Oh, absolutely. It's a living thing. Can't do exactly. It. Yeah. It's just, you know, you, you can't really. And so it's such a, yeah, it's such a fascinating thing. Even, you know, I, I wrote my book in, in June mm. and since then I've learned so much that I already wish I could go back and change like all these different things, including even something as basic as there's like a further reading section at the back of my book with book <laughs> yeah. suggestions. And I'm like, Oh my God, I missed all these incredible books I should have suggested. <laughs> oh, I feel you. Like I wish there's so much with great goddesses that I wish I could go back. Mainly it is the Persephone um and Demeter kind of bit but I really liked that poem that I wrote where Demeter was like you know essentially F you Hades you give me back my daughter how mm-hmm. dare you that was that poem when I look back at it now I'm like well she was telling me she was telling me in the poem that came out of me that this is how she feels and I didn't honor that that's such a strange way to put it but like I think I, no. I, I you know what I mean? Yeah, Some... <laughs> absolutely. That's fascinating. It's not strange at all. I feel like that that means so much on my end as well. Of I think Demeter is such a complex character. And so, I mean, that poem, clearly, you kind of got exactly, I don't want to say right, but it's also the only word I can think of. Yeah, yeah. But how would you reapproach some of the other Persephone bits, do you think? I think I would make more space for the fact that she is a survivor. Like she was kidnapped and like her father arranged that kidnapping, right? Yes. And also there's a version of the myth that talks about how Zeus actually did rape Persephone, mm-hmm. you know? 
And Zeus is is very much the misogynistic, archetypical, like, god who's like, I'm in control of everything, I control all the things. There are nuances to him as well, of course, but, like, I feel like the way that he has treated women old, it's been very consistent all through myth, right? Yes. He, 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 <laughs> I would say he's, yeah, he's overall the most, like, there's nuances, but there's not that much. <laughs> like, you can't make excuses for him kind of thing, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, there's, he, he is the way that he is, and a lot of what he does is quite unforgivable. <laughs> and um, I feel like that arranging or trafficking of Persephone, because that's what it was, that was trafficking. Oh, that's so true, yeah. And like in today's terms, that what we that's what we would call it. And then this poor mother, like what happens to the victim of trafficking's mother, mm-hmm. right? Like if you see Demeter through a lens of that, it just, it's heartbreaking. It really is. And I, one thing I find interesting and I learned a bit more about it in my recent chat with uh Ellie Mackin Roberts Dr. Ellie Mackin Roberts uh, about Persephone and she's I mean I learned so many fascinating things in that talk but specifically this idea that you know we we see it that way it was abduction it was Zeus sanctioned abduction but because it was Zeus sanctioned from like a almost legal point of view back then or the way they would have understood all of that it mm. was okay yeah it was permitted mm. and there is kind of an interpretation of Demeter that isn't kind of Demeter but it it is also based in the patriarchy and based in in the world of ancient Greece not so much the character of Demeter that she was a little bit more angry that she hadn't been consulted on this quote unquote arranged marriage mm-hmm. versus the actual, you know, thoughts for Persephone. Yeah. And I don't necessarily, I, I do think Demeter as a character, it's more suggestive that she would have cared, mm-hmm. you know, on a more personal mm-hmm. level, but that's fascinating in itself too. Right. Yeah. Because Zeus was Persephone's father and therefore it was his right yeah. to give her to Hades, which is revolting, yeah. Yeah. but an, an extra kind of level to it. Yeah, almost like you have uh, disrespected my pos- my position in the hierarchy as opposed to you did this to my daughter. Exactly. That's so yeah. fascinating. It really is. Greek, Greek myth is constantly, it constantly surprises me, I think. Yeah. And like, what's really great about it is that having discussions with, with other people who love the myths or who are classicists or have an interest and you learn new things about it all the time and I think that's the most important thing about this isn't it you keep like this really open mind and go I have things to learn I I love that I love that that this has taught me how to do that so much more that's what this book taught me how to do it's like listen more if that makes Mm. sense yeah 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 I mean I I feel so similarly when it comes to the podcast just because of how how much I've grown but also how much I have taken in and I'm constantly learning a new thing that I then want to express somehow and change what I've done in the past or yeah. yeah, it's, it's fascinating. One thing that really stood out to me in the book is Medusa, because obviously I love, I love Medusa. Her. She's love just the her. best, but the, the poem specifically about the Gorgons and like the mm. idea of the Gorgons, mm. I feel like you basically, put into a beautiful poem the way my brain constantly wants to explain Medusa and essentially like deconstructed all the fights I've gotten into on Twitter with like (laughs) shitty misogynists who who hate Medusa which I 
have a habit of doing. But, you know, so often if, if, this it comes up on Twitter so much, and I don't know mm. if you've heard my conversation about this exact thing uh, mm. <laughs> as well. Yeah, um, but it you know men have this really weird desire on Twitter to like not let women like Medusa. Yeah, it, it's creepy and bizarre, and and comes up so often. But and so my newest thing to goad them basically because it's fun um, is there really isn't a lot of description of her monstrosity. There, there is some description of Gorgon monstrosity, but even that is debatable. But in terms of Medusa, you know, until they started actually depicting her in imagery, and even then, you know, it's nothing crazy. She's just described as a woman, essentially. Mm, like, yes, mm. she's named a Gorgon. So she, you know she's not mortal. Yeah. But it's in the same way that, like, the fates aren't mortal or mm. the muses aren't mortal. And you're like, well, none of them are monstrous it's just a new word gorgon and and i find that fascinating the idea that she has become monstrous because of Mm. you know all the different things about her as a character and less so Mm. because she was actually ever meant to be that way in the you know the the original like archaic forms of the myths she's a fascinating I, i i feel so awful for medusa like the way that she is, well, what I look at her and think of is colonization. I look at her and think that she is colonized and she is abused and she is every, like things are taken from her and she fights back and then she's killed. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. literally what happens to her. And it's heartbreaking. But if that isn't a metaphor for womanhood, then I don't know <laughs> what is, you know, like yeah. the minute you start fighting back, you become a monster. That's what you are. You're a monster. You're not defending yourself. You're a monster. You're going You're out of your box, which yeah. is probably where that that you know misogynistic men come in because they they also see it, but like they see it on a subconscious level, whilst we see it on a conscious level. You mm. know what I mean? And they, their yeah. instant instant thing is like, how dare you? How dare you like this creature? You must be you must be a man hating feminist. Is what I get when I defend Medusa. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's so crazy because you can you can have all of your rational arguments based in contextual like primary sources yeah. and the way that they will bend over backwards to say that that's wrong. I had a guy and I knew I should have stopped responding at some point, but it was yeah. so hard to because mm. it was so absurd and I always mm. feel the need to defend her. Mm-hmm. And... I had somebody who who went into all these crazy details and for one kept changing his argument because he clearly didn't have an argument. But at one point was like, of course, she's a monster. She terrorized the lands for millennia or generations. And I was like, in what story or pottery or anything? Give me one primary example where she terrorized anything. She literally lived at the ends of the earth. He Perseus had to travel to the ends of the earth to get her. She was doing nothing. There's no example of her causing any trouble whatsoever. There is literally Medusa was a Gorgon. She either slept with or was assaulted by Poseidon. I always err Mm. on the side of assaulted because it's Poseidon, let alone a God in general. (laughs) But, and you know, and, and she had snakes for hair and Perseus killed her. And you're like, that's mm. the whole story, basically. Like, there are mm. variations. And Ovid obviously gives us this, like, stunning telling that 
that adds a lot of detail that isn't necessarily in the original Greek extant sources. Mm-hmm. But that's it. Like, <laughs> it's literally like she was a, a Gorgon and Perseus killed her. That's, like, yeah. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> There's this section in, in, in Natalie Haynes' new book, um, mm. Pandora's Jar, where she she has a whole chapter on Medusa. And there's something, and it really, I can't forget that paragraph, basically, where she talks about Perseus and she says, this is after Perseus has killed her and he's got Medusa's head, right? And he, he, he basically takes care of the head with far more care than anyone has ever cared for Medusa in her life. Mm-hmm. That, that, because it's useful to him. That's the only reason he cares and he like places it carefully and he looks after it and he makes sure it never goes. And I looked at all of that and I was like, oh my God, even in death, the only way that this woman is cared about is through her uses to men. Yeah. And it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart because I know she's fictional. But she is such a metaphor for every survivor and what we go through. Yeah. Right? Like, how do you, like, when you have survived sexual assault, you don't just, like, heal from it because you are accused again and again of, like, making it up. You're gaslit. You're told that, where's your evidence? You're told, everyone knows. And I refuse to believe that even the people who ask for this don't know. It is very hard to prove sexual assault. Like, yeah. It really is. It's very hard. Like women have gone in and had rape kits done and there have been lawyers who've been able to prove in court, despite the fact that there was an actual rape kit, there was trauma, there were all sorts of terrible things happening to this woman. They've been able to say that, no, 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 she just, she, she wanted it that way. And the guys got gone free. And I look at Medusa's story and that's what I see, you know? Yeah. (laughs) No, completely. She, she has surpassed fiction. I think, you know, mm-hmm. like she's fictional, but she, she is so much now. She is everything mm-hmm. you just said that I, I think she's just, she's gone beyond fiction in a way that not a lot of other characters have. And mm. I mean, I personally will defend her to the death, even though she was fictional. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think we, we all see a bit of ourselves in her because we will experience that. Um, I find it very hard to argue with men online. I find them far too emotional and, and you know, they kind of go into these like, <laughs> They go into histrionics about the most ridiculous things. Like, you know, the, the, it's, none of it is based in fact. You know, very few of them will bring facts to the table. Most of them is just like, no, I'm. how dare this woman, like, speak over me? That's the attitude yeah. that they have. So I understand, like, because I've had this argument with men online. And, like, this whole Medusa terrorized so many people. I'm like, you mean the people who invaded her cave to come and kill her? <laughs> Are you, are we like, uh, what? <laughs> yeah. And even that's like a bit of a modern understanding of her too. Like there's no, there's no story of anyone beyond Perseus. No. That argument is valid too, because, you know, you have to kind of argue her in a modern context where you do have this kind of idea that she was surrounded by stone sculptures of right. men who had tried to kill her. And I like yeah. that idea too. Yeah. Frankly. <laughs> um, but it, yeah, it's like. It, there's really there's absolutely no evidence that she caused anyone harm whatsoever not she, a single lick of it <laughs> like the evidence in itself is that she never left that temple yeah she, she didn't leave the, no she she literally went to the ends of the earth like 
the way it's described is because obviously they they understood or they believed that the earth had an end and she lived at it mm. she moved as far away from civilization as humanly possible and perseus still went there to kill her and we are supposed to believe that she was in some way a, a villain <sighs> Like, how did we turn this woman into a villain? Like, that, even when I was a child, I read Medusa's story and I saw all of those interpretations of her on screen. And I just used to be like, why? Like, if yeah. you go looking, to, like, it's, it's the equivalent of even the way that is depicted on screen. They always go looking for her. They go looking for a monster to kill. Right. And then they act yeah. as if they're heroes by killing this monster. Yeah. And I'm just like, you went into something's home and then you tried <laughs> to kill it, even if it was a monster. Like so many hero stories are just of these like men who just like decided, OK, we're just going to go in there into this place. We are not welcome. And we basically, it like, there's a big beware sign in front of it and like, <laughs> stay away. But we're going to go in there and we're going to fight that thing and we're going to kill it. And everyone's going to think we're heroes. What? <laughs> yeah. Like, explain what the heroism is in that moment. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it's one of those things. It's, it's, it's like this very um, toxic mix of toxic mas masculinity with colonization. They intersect at so many points. And that's what it is, isn't it? Like yeah. it's, 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 um, because I come from India, colonization is something I think about a lot, you know, cause my grandparents were, were adults at the time when the British left. So they have all mm. these vivid stories. Like my grandfather told me the story about how there was a, um, um, an orchard because he lived in Kashmir. So there was an orchard next door to him and like how he used to visit that orchard and like there were white guards. They were like British guards that guarded that orchard because it was an orchard that you know, the British used to take a lot of fruit from and everything. Mm. He talked about how they were like a bunch of like 12 to 13 year old boys, him and his friends. They were beaten to an inch of their lives for daring to go into the white man's orchard and steal a white man's orchard, which was in our country, in our. Yeah, it, it was it's a horrific story. And he tells it in such detail. And I look at that and I'm like, that's colonization, isn't it? You go to someone else's land, you like. You go to someone else's home, you take it over, you call it your own. And then the person, the people who, who are off that land, you villainize them. You turn them into the bad guys and you beat them and you subhumanize them. And it's just, yeah, I think that's why I identify so much with the monsters in this book, um, in, in this book and in, in Greek myth. All of them. <laughs> yeah. I love all of them. <laughs> yeah. No, I feel the same way. And that's such a, I mean, for one, that's a horrifying story and i i try to think more and more about colonization in in general i i am a white person from canada so you know we've got a lot of shit on our end too um and it, it's such a, a dark thing all of it but i i had never thought of medusa in that way and i think that's so valid but also just like it's just such a perfect kind of interpretation mm -hmm. of of her story i had started writing a short story for this book about medusa mm. um and a lot of stuff didn't make it into this book simply because if everything i had written made it into this <laughs> book it would have been about 700 pages long right because i just fell in love with all the stories i was like these stories that they're so easy to love these stories you know and they really are 
the thing with the great gods and goddesses and, and all the monsters and everything is that they're so they're not human absolutely not but they're messy they're so messy man like they remind us of ourselves because they're petty is one of those things where you're constantly sitting over there and you're constantly thinking about all the stories that you heard as a child and so much of this book is just when my mom read me these stories from the Encyclopedia Britannica, I remember we have this really, they're really old now. I think they're my grandfather's and my mom would read me these stories and I'd be like, but why was, why was Zeus so mean to Hera? Why was he so mean to her? What did she ever do to him that he was so mean to her? And my mom would be like, well, she was mean to the people that he was sleeping with. I'm like, but wasn't he married to her? Like, isn't that like wrong? <laughs> so my mom is like this is different you know it's like in in Greece that was acceptable for a man to do those things but like it wasn't acceptable I'm like mom that sounds really wrong you know because <laughs> I was like what 10 I was like that just yeah. it sounds it sounds a bit messed up <laughs> that's the thing and it's uh, I mean you're just describing like why I have this obsession with these myths that I do because they're not human, but what makes them so fascinating is those human characteristics. Right. The fact that Zeus is an absolute piece of human garbage. Just like <laughs> a just a shitty guy in control of everything. I mean, he's a great sort of symbol for everything. <laughs> also sort of, I don't know if I can make the argument that's in the vein of colonialism. I think I could. But, you know, like he he is, he's like the British Empire, you know? He is. He really <laughs> is. It's what he is. Yeah. What he does to all of those women is no different from colonization. Like, just, just, what he did to Europa, man. Come on. Oh, my God. I mean, perfect example. Literally Europe. But, like, he, and the there's a fascinating, and I, I forget who, where it's from. It might be Roman. But there's a fascinating extra detail of that story that I found when I covered her more recently. Mm-hmm. that there was somebody who wrote this version where she's visited in a dream by two continents, oh. Asia and this unnamed one. Mm-hmm. And Asia is where she's from and holds on to her and says, you know, like I am your home or I'm going to forget all the details. But essentially this dream foretells that either, you know, she's going to stay in in her home in Asia who, that loves her or this like mysterious continent is going to overtake her. Oh and God. then, yeah. And so I think this is a later, a later story, but I love it. It's beautiful. And it's, isn't it? I mean, just, I mean, it, it fits so well, obviously Europe is named for her, mm. but just the idea that, that she was taken from Asia to become Europe is a dark and fascinating thing. I do think it also says a lot about how the ancient Greeks respected Asia Minor as they saw Mm. it, you know, like Mm. that whole region. I mean, not only did they think that Europa basically like founded Europe from Phoenicia, but they also credit her brother Cadmus for giving them their alphabet. So I think it's fascinating the way they they definitely had like a huge amount of respect for for not only like you know Phoenicia and the whole of what is now kind of modern Turkey Lebanon area right, and yeah. but also Egypt I mean they had yeah. this huge respect for Egypt who Cadmus went to Greece mm. and named Thebes Thebes for I'm the glory of Egypt <laughs> yeah like it's a very fascinating thing they were definitely colonizers too but it, it's such yeah. a different thing than than the the British Empire you know yeah. which was 
it, yeah, racist. it's such it's, exactly <laughs> like one racist. had one had a level of racism that definitely the ancient Greeks were certainly they had their own kind of version of it, yeah. but it wasn't based in color. It wasn't based in skin color. Absolutely. It was based in like whether you spoke Greek. So it was kind of easy to fix. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just like, well, like you love Greek. the language. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they were, yeah, they, they were like able to respect people from other regions as long as they kind of spoke Greek. But yeah, this this different level of this British Empire coming in, and it's such a Zeus thing. It's just overtaking and, yeah. and destroying everything and yeah. just fucking shit up. What well, absolutely sorry, I just swear <laughs> enough. I find it. I, I mean, that's not my whole podcast. Don't worry. <laughs> I do. I do see like Zeus. Like the running joke is like, who's the father of all the fuck boys? And Zeus is like, me. I am the fuck father. Um, but yeah, I find he's a he's. It's really his and Hera's relationship is very fascinating to me because as the goddess of marriage, she cannot physically leave him. Um, I, I wrote a version of the story where she did, um, because, and I, I, and I loved writing that story because, uh, so I started, when I started researching this book, I had a little bit of empathy towards Europe, but like, I, I, you know, I always saw her as the anti, you know, anti woman's woman, you know, like she, she was very, she, she took out all of her temper on Zeus's mistresses and his children. And that, to me, even if you were cheated on, it, it, I found it unforgivable until I really started looking into her as, a, as like a goddess. And in a lot of like, in a lot of, so I wrote this entire play on her because I'm so obsessed with her now. Mm-hmm. And it basically is called Maidens, Myths and Monsters. And it's, you know, she tells the story of Olympus from, you know, the minute they are born, like, and they come out of Kronos mm-hmm. and you see her why she becomes the way she does because she was one of Zeus's first victims right he turns into and the thing with that story that always really hurts me physically hurts me is the way that he did it that he turned himself into a cuckoo he turned himself into one of her favorite she loved birds and he used that against her I oh my god it breaks my heart it breaks my heart and I acting that because it was a one woman show and I did it's like a it's like a long poem done over an hour where she tells the whole story that sounds amazing oh so much fun to do and it was so much fun oh. to like create and to write and 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 you know then I did the show and there were 10 nights that I did it and people came back to watch it two or three times and they were like oh my god we want to hate her but you've made it so hard you've made it yeah. so hard because you look at her and you realize that she's a victim of trauma herself and she hasn't been able to process it and towards the end, you know, she does get her redemption where she goes, I am so tired of this. I am so tired of him and everything. Like, I'm so tired of being devoured constantly by him, mm. you know, by his stories where he gets to be this affable, lovable scamp, you know, essentially, despite all of the bad things that he does. And I have to be the villain every time. And no one understands my story because I never get to tell it. But yeah. Her story, really, it just, it shook me when I began to really look into her and realize who she was. Oh, yeah. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking stuff, what was done to the goddesses. <laughs> Absolutely. Hera's one that I want to dive back into um, because of everything I've kind of learned, but also sort of developed in my own understanding. Because 
the thing about her too, I mean, everything that you've just said, but I always, I always go to the, the ancient sources of it because of the type of nerd that I am. (laughs) And so for me, I just always go back to like, well, who wrote these stories, right? Mm -hmm. It's, and so with Hera, you know, she is a product of the men who wrote down these stories that survive to us today, not necessarily the original stories or mm-hmm. how everyone in ancient Greece understood her. She's a product of the versions that we have. And in those versions, like Zeus doesn't, I mean, he's doing things wrong, but it's never presented as if like, it's actually really harmful in any mm-hmm. kind of concrete way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because all for the most part, all the victims are women, except for Ganymede who, like gets his place up on Mount Olympus. Like, so it, you know, it's Hera also. And I mean, setting aside who wrote these stories down, Hera presumably couldn't punish Zeus. And she was sort of so overtaken by like what you're saying, her own trauma, everything Mm. she's experienced being married to the asshole (laughs) that, you know, I think she kind of became that sort of patriarchal idea of a woman who will punish the women because it's the same idea of like in all, you know, old TV shows and probably still way too recently where a guy cheats on his girlfriend and the girlfriend punches the girl or something, you know, where you're like, whose fucking fault is it that your boyfriend cheated? It's not hers. It's Mm. absolutely his. And this Mm. idea that women will blame other women for something a man does, Mm. you know, she's like the first one who ever, yeah, like blamed a woman for a cheating spouse. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, it's it's so dark and, you know, and she couldn't what could she have done to the king of the gods anyway? She tried once, didn't she? She tried and look what happened to her. Yeah, that's a story that I keep meaning to tell and I actually like meant to jot it down today. I was thinking about it as I was reading <laughs> rereading some of the poems in Great Goddesses and I was like, I have never actually told the story of of when Hera tried to take down Zeus. Because people always say, like, why didn't she ever, why would she, why didn't she ever try? Why didn't she did? She tried, and look what he did to her for trying. Like, I and who helped him? It was all it's men, it's men. It was men who helped him. Like, I it really frustrates me. It frustrates me because what she did was incredibly brave. It was a mutiny. She knew what would happen because she knew his temper. I'm sorry, I talk about them like they're real people, don't I? But like, I, I'm so invested. So do I. Yeah, <laughs> so right? Do I. Like, I'm so invested in those stories because I see there is so much of a reflection of what women actually go through today in those stories because people want to believe things like, Oh yeah, those stories are so ancient. They don't reflect our modern day. Of course they bloody do. Of course they bloody do. Like the the way Medusa is treated as a victim and like re-victimized and re-victimized and villainized. Same way Hera becomes the evil one, even though her husband is the biggest cheat and like a soldier of women. The same way, like, so many of the gods get their, get their nuances the way the goddesses don't. The goddesses Absolutely. are always petty. The goddesses yep. are always petty. No matter, no matter how, no matter, even if you're Athena, even if, and Athena was not a girl's girl. <laughs> but even so, even so, her mistakes are not as easy to forgive as, say, Apollo's mistakes. I, I think about Aphrodite a lot in those oh. cases. She, I, I've always loved her, and I think she's just kind she's of still wonderful. my... She is, and... 
I I think I, it's funny. I, I I'm not a person like I'm not a romantic person, and and still like my favorite thing about Aphrodite is that she just said fuck it, and she was just with Aries whenever she wanted, among other men that yeah. she you yeah. know felt like it at the time. But mm. I love that she and Aries have a what I consider to be one of the only like legitimate romances in like they actually loved each other in a way that there's not a lot of other love stories, real love stories in Greek mythology. And yet she couldn't actually be with him, but she was just kind of like, fuck it. I don't like my husband. Everyone can know that I don't like my husband. We're just going to go with it. And, and I just, yeah, she has kind of had this level of freedom that, yeah, yeah, not a lot of goddesses had. Yeah, and she's and the the whole relationship between her and her vice just is so interesting to me as well. Absolutely. Okay, I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Thursday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies.
Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon. Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty System for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. I find Hephaestus, I have a lot of love for Hephaestus. Like one of my friends was like, when mm. I was talking about him, I was writing the poems about him. She was like, you've got to be careful because you're going to end up manifesting a baby. Like at this rate, <laughs> you love him a little too much, like calm down. And I think it's because, um, I think Hephaestus being this, this man who works in a forge and that's all, he loves very few things. Working in the forge and making these beautiful, like, you know, weapons and like, especially like for Hermes, he, when Hermes is a baby, I love that story, but Hermes is a baby and Hephaestus makes him his first little like helmet and everything like, which is like very cute. Oh. It's very, very cute. I love it. Like he, 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 he's, there's a real kind side to Hephaestus that you see hmm. over and over and over again in, in the myths. And he's the one that, that, that's gone through the most, you know? They've like thrown him off like Olympus. Whether it was Zeus or Hera who did it, depending on which version of a myth you hear, he was thrown off Olympus and it ends, he ends up disabled because of it. But what does he do with that? Like he comes back and he manages to come back in the most conniving way, which I think is pretty slick. <laughs> pretty slick. I think I think we're on different sides of the the spectrum. <laughs> I think I think I find him um easier to relate to because I can understand um taking you know take being hated from the minute you are born and carrying that hatred with you I can identify with that and I find it very interesting the way because people either love him or hate him right like it's it's he's a very yeah. he's, an, he's a very interesting god because people either love him or they absolutely <laughs> don't like him at all. So I'm on that. So we may be on other ends, but I, I can understand because I've met people who can't stand him. <laughs> so- no, and and I, sh- I don't say I yeah. hate him. And I do think he's fascinating. Yeah. Like I think, and, and like you said, you know, I mean, I think he's very complex. Mm. He was hated from the beginning and that is so heartbreaking. Mm. And he was thrown off Mount Olympus and that is so heartbreaking. Yeah. So I, Personally, I like, I can see, I can see why people Mm. like him so much and I can see why they identify with him and I absolutely find him sympathetic, Mm. but I also go to him trying to in a chair and I I still thought that was quite funny. (laughs) I shouldn't, but it was funny. 
The problem, I think, because I don't, I think, especially if you're considering her as the one who threw him off yeah, Mount Olympus, yeah. then I'm kind of like, okay, <laughs> cool. Like, I think that's a good call on your part. I think the darkness for me is that it results in him, Aphrodite being that. basically tricked and forced mm. into marrying him. So I think my problems, my problems with him are based around Aphrodite yeah. and not so much based around like his original story. Yeah. Like, and I love her as well. I find it pretty hard because I do love all of them independently. And it's because I, I see them yeah. in their nuances, right? I love Aphrodite. And even in the book, I write her crying and crying on her wedding day. And the way I've written him is that he says that, don't do this. She won't love me. Don't do this. She mm. won't love me. Oh, but yeah. like there was also the element of Zeus being pressured almost by Hera to, to marry Aphrodite off because Aphrodite was really beautiful. And like all of the gods were like fans, you know, it basically in a way it threatened Hera's beauty as well, didn't it? Because she's a very beautiful goddess as well. And she is jealous. That uh, That's fine. She's jealous. So I saw it from, that's the angle I came at it from. And of course, in a book where you're where you're playing and you're telling it in a fictional way, you can do that. Mm-hmm. But I, I always yeah. saw it as that must have been so horrible for everyone involved, for Ares, who was made a god of terrible things, for Hephaestus, who you know didn't really I mean, he didn't deserve a, a wife who didn't love him. He deserved a wife who would stay no. with him, right? And for like Aphrodite, who was being forced to marry a man that not only she didn't love, she wasn't attracted to, like in any way. And she's this beautiful yeah. goddess. Like, and all of those things come together and they create like the ultimate soap opera, really, don't they? <laughs> I mean, there's yeah, the that like love triangle slash everything that goes on between those three. Like, is just the best. And soap he can opera be so spiteful, right? Hephaestus with the chair, with the fine, oh. the bed, the chains. Oh my goodness. I love it, but also it's, <laughs> it's so, so dark. dark. And weird. It's so dark. Like, this is where, like, the story that, that I found really hard to rationalize the story that I was writing. I was like, yeah, but you want him to to be this guy who's quite put upon, but he does go and do that, Nikita, you know, like, cause you have to question your own, the way you're writing something. Right. And I'm like, what if he just waits in your story instead till she finally sees him, you know, mm. what if he, he just waits? And I was like, yeah, but you're not being very accurate with the myth, are you? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, but you know, I, I, I was like, if I could do it, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah why not i don't think there's anything wrong with playing with the myths when it comes to that type of thing it's actually something that i find myself struggling with and i want to get better at it like i'm trying to write fiction based on the myths but i it's hard i'm so deep in the accuracy Yeah, yeah and and i think it's it's just especially hard since i have spent these past four years of my life like every waking moment trying to tell an accurate story and it that's gotten more and more intense mm. for me, especially in the past year. I've become Twitter friends with a lot of classicists. Yeah. And that has like influenced me to be like, oh my God, like what if I get mm. this thing wrong? Or and and I it, it's totally on me and it's my own anxieties. But I find because I'm so obsessed with making the podcast like as accurate as humanly possible, it makes it very difficult for me to play with the stories in a completely separate medium, I'm trying to make yeah. it something different. I want to write fiction desperately. 
and I'm struggling with it so yeah. hard because it's like, yeah, I just I have trouble getting beyond the characters that I know so well from the podcast. It's really hard. It's really hard. And it's like when I was writing this book, I went through all of that. But because I haven't like I wasn't in, in, in it as deep as you are, like, you know, with the accuracy and with the I read all the books and everything, but I hadn't I didn't have the I hadn't gone in and spoken to any classes. You know, I hadn't I hadn't had that experience that I did question myself. I did sit over there and I go, you know, there is a version of the story where he tries to rape Athena and he does this and he does that, you know. Mm -hmm. And I looked at all of that and I'm like, your lovely little Hephaestus isn't as lovely little Hephaestus as you think (laughs) he is. Because there's that mean little voice that you have to have in your head when you're writing all the time, right? Who's your inner critic and kind of... And that inner critic's really useful, especially when you're writing about the classics. And it's just like, you've had that argument with yourself where you're like, no, I'm making this decision. I know all of this, but I'm making this decision because I want to tell a certain story and I want a certain narrative because with a with fiction, you have to have a single narrative unless you're writing three or four different perspectives. And this book was like mm-hmm. so many different perspectives, right? And a lot of the gods, like, I feel like I gave a lot of, I even gave Zeus an out, you know? I said like, you get to choose. Who do you want to be? Do you want to be, do you yeah. want to be king of the gods or do you just want a happy life? Who do you want to be? You know, and, and every scenario in my head, because writers do that where they sit the character down and they interrogate the character. Every single one of those scenarios, he chose to be the king of the gods in my head. Everyone, <laughs> there was no out for him. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's Zeus. You tried, right? <laughs> like you gave him the chance. It's just he's still <laughs> <laughs> can't do anything about it. You you give him you give him as many shots as you want, but he doesn't he doesn't change. <laughs> he doesn't change. There are some parts of his personality that are so set, you know. But even with Aphrodite, like her core personality is so interesting, you know. She's such a fascinating character. <laughs> she really is. I, I yeah, I I've always just been just very obsessed with her as a character and the things she experiences and you know she yeah I don't know what it is about her too like she I mean she's fascinating she's super complex but there's just something there I just love it I think there's there's an independence to her isn't it there's an independence to her yeah it's something you described right at the beginning when we started talking about her she does what she wants anyway she flouts yeah. what Zeus has put on her. And I think that's what makes her so interesting and such a hero to me. Like a true hero, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she loves who she wants to love. She does what she wants to do. It's one of those things It's you know, she, she really is like, she's got to be one of the most free and independent of the goddesses. I mean, I, Athena, I think, wants you to believe that she is, but she's really so obsessed with, with the... With rules and with being accepted by mm. the gods. And by that, I mean the men, yeah. you know? Oh, she's got daddy issues as well. Like major daddy issues. Huge daddy issues. Yeah, huge issues there. And I think she just wants to be one of the guys. You know, like dive into what made her yeah. that way, either in the stories or in the culture or whatever. But but yeah, Aphrodite is just kind of like, no, whatever. I'm going to do what mm. I want. I'm going to have a ton of kids with Aries. Absolutely none with my husband. <laughs> And just kind of like be this like icon of sex and beauty and and not it's not even like 
she sticks with mm-hmm. Aries. Like I believe she and Aries were actually in love. They're like my couple mm-hmm. if if I were to have one. But she's even like no, no. But like Adonis is really yeah. hot. You know, like I I'm I also yeah. want him, and and there's definitely more I can't mm-hmm. think of. But I love that she she loves Aries. She doesn't love mm-hmm. her husband, but she is also willing. She's like, well, no, I'm not sticking mm-hmm. with Aries either. Like I'm gonna have mm-hmm. my way. I'm just gonna do whatever the yeah. hell I want. Yeah, and Hephaestus is married to his forge, isn't he? He's married to his forge. Let's be honest. Yeah, I mean, I think he tried for a while. Yeah. You know, trapped them in a net, which is. <laughs> <laughs> innovative <laughs> like it is one of my favorite stories because it is the most absurd and like it's comical it's so funny <laughs> and it's also one of the most ancient it's like the one yeah. it's like Hermes's birth story where on like his first three days of being alive he kills a turtle invents the liar and then steals <laughs> Apollo's cows from like all across Greece and you're like and Apollo shows up really pissed off and can't be angry yeah. at the baby because it gives him a liar and I'm just like, like oh my god like he hides in his crib under the covers trying to get away from Apollo it's crazy and then to think that that was r- written down somewhere in like 700 BC and you're like what like i just want to go back and talk to these people so bad and be like this is this was your culture this is your ancient like everyone wants to talk about you that this whole ideal of greece being like you know and for better or worse there's a lot of darkness involved but the like quote unquote you know founders of western civilization which is its own level yeah right where you're like they invented democracy and oh the classic playwrights and the philosophers they were so brilliant and then you're like okay but in 700 bc someone was singing about a kid who stole cows from across greece like or the guy who tried to catch his wife having sex by trapping her and her lover in an invisible net like like, sure they also invented democracy but this came before that like I just want them to be like I always picture them like really seriously telling these stories and like getting really pissed off if anyone laughs because in my head that's how I see it (laughs) especially when you're talking about the Homeric hymns like they which is where both of those stories originally come from or that we know of they would have been sung you know like people are probably like traveling around the Hellenic world singing songs of Hephaestus trapping Aphrodite in a net hilarious it's actually uh, hilarious like and i think that's why we love these stories so much is because there there's elements of like fun in them isn't there like yes. humor like and you and you see it a little bit in like uh, hindu mythology i think pantheons in general any mm. any religion that has a pantheon of gods um you know there's loki in the norse yeah, true. <laughs> gods <laughs> who i can't even talk about without cracking up because he was up to so much mischief but any religion with a pantheon, there will be humor and war with that pantheon somewhere or the other. My mom tells the most hilarious version of the Mahabharata ever. And the way that she tells it is so funny because you're just sitting over there going, what do you mean? And like one of the, she, she doesn't ever use the characters names. She just gives them descriptors. So she's like the evil scented lady. So I was like, <laughs> and then the evil scented lady did this. And then like the poor old man was like this. And I was just like, it's far easier to follow the story, funnily enough, without the names yeah. for like the descriptors instead. 
But if you hear like my mother's version of the Mahabharata, it's it's extremely ir- irreverent, but it's so funny. And you're just like, these are our great epics, really. <laughs> <laughs> the ancient people were amazing you know ancient people across mm-hmm. all of earth had these incredible stories i want to learn more about the indigenous stories of canada um there yeah. it's hard to find yeah. because we have the british empire really did kind of drill them all into the earth and hide everything yeah. but you know yeah like all these these ancient cultures had all these stories to tell and it was i mean it was their version of tv right it was like these, yeah, yeah these like oral stories where you're just kind of like listen sit someone's just going to sit in front of a fire and listen to this bard tell you this absolutely bananas story about <laughs> the gods and it's just so yeah it's just so magnificent and it's interesting mm-hmm. you're saying the way your your mom tells the stories of the with the descriptors because yeah. i mean that's basically how those old stories in Greece were told too, right? Where, yeah, yeah. you know, it was always like Aphrodite is the Cyprian goddess or the Catharian yeah. goddess, right? It's it's that yeah. or the Thracian god would be Ares and like all these things yeah. where you're not necessarily using using the name, but you're using this thing about them that reminds people who you're talking about. And I think that that was a, it was a part of the the oral tradition of just like learning it that way because you're not reading it, you're not, seeing that name and so i think it's easier to remember the name once you're seeing it but when you're just listening i think that's kind of the best way of telling those those stories is that if you use those descriptors and so clearly your mom was just or is just like a you know basically a homeric bard (laughs) well well you know the hindus like the the, my mom's hindu my dad's sikh but like the hindus believed in reincarnation right so i bet she must have been like somewhere thousands of years ago she was a bard telling these stories <laughs> yeah she was a hindu bard <laughs> just traveling around and, and telling these ancient stories i love i love that idea as well like the idea that we've all been here before um and like when i wrote the girl and the goddess so i i've done i did great goddesses and then i've done the girl and the goddess and i did an entire novel in verse with like the nine versions of shakti which are the nine versions of the goddess basically visiting this child um, and kind of, you know, as she's growing up in modern day and, you know, the, the, the story of reincarnation appears again and again and again. And, you know, the, the whole story of like the Ramayan shows up in the book and Draupadi, who's, you know, one of the main female characters in the Mahabharata, tells the story of the Mahabharata, but only nine pages. So like nine pages for that novel, nine pages for the Ramayan and the whole thing is told and it has to be somewhat magical, right? I find it really interesting because Indian people have loved the book. They have, by and large, loved the book. Um, a few people from the West have loved the book, but a lot of the book also deals with calling out colonization. And you know, one thing this book has really done for mm. me is like, I can really see the type of person who reads my work and doesn't really want to see the um, me talk about my own culture. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. Like some of the reviews I've got on this book or some, like I even got like a few DMs and emails where people are like, why don't you stick to writing about fairy tales and Greek myths instead of writing about like Indians? I love it when people say Indians as if like I'm not an Indian myself and they don't realize how racist they're being when they say that. It's it's really funny. (laughs) 
That's so dark. You, an Indian woman, stick to the Greeks, would you? What are you doing diving into your own mythologies and cultures? Like, what? So, my father's family, like, um, they're, they're, they're actually... So, our tribe actually did come from Greece. Like, the Jetsi oh, wow. community in general, we did come from Greece. And we settled in, you know, what's now Punjab and everything. And because there's so much casteism that the tribe didn't really marry outside of the tribe. They, you know, they stuck within the community. Mm. So it's just really interesting because my father has been able to trace his family line back to Greece. Wow. And everything, which is very cool. Like it just, it's very interesting to see that we actually came from there and which would like explain my like obsession with the Greek myths to a certain extent as well, because it's all about like your roots, right? Where, where, Where do you come from? All of us spend our whole lives, in a way, trying to figure out where we came from and to deal with the trauma of what we're given. The Catholic goddesses as well, there's so much to them, you know, like Styx and Hecate and even Persephone later on. And I love the idea of like Hecate kind of being quite protective of Persephone or Corey as she's becoming Persephone, right? Like I love the idea of like women giving other women the power to survive in these terrible... I love it. I, I love it all. And maybe I'm making it all up in my head, but like in my head, I see sticks doing the same for Hikati. Mm. You know, like it just, it's like a tradition of women, like giving other women this power to survive anything in a world of patriarchy and men who control everything. But do they? Do they really? Not. <laughs> or is they it the do women? Not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've been thinking more and more lately about like what stories that must have been told that we don't have. Which I think yeah. about all the time, but lately, just in terms of the women's stories and like what they must have, what they must have told each other or their children or whoever. Oh yeah, that we yeah. don't have, you know, like that. I would yeah. kill to know what real myths were told by the matriarchs. You know, were told yeah. by the women who really did control the whole household. They just never wrote them right. down, or if they wrote them down, they didn't survive. Yeah. I kind of wish there were more stories about Hestia, for instance. I think she's such an interesting goddess. And so important. So important. Mm. You know, she was completely vital to the ancient Greek home. She she was mm. everything. And yet, yeah, we don't have stories of her, which is fascinating. I kind of just picture her as just being so over it. You know, like, I, yeah. like I'm just way too good for your Olympian drama. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm leaving the Real Housewives of Olympus and I'm just going to be yeah. where I'm needed. And that's like in every ancient Greek person's home. Like, I like to just imagine her just like over their shit. And that's why we don't have anything about her. <laughs> I literally picture her. I This is so off track and it has nothing to I have no evidence for something <laughs> like this at all. It's just in my head. I see it like, you know, Hestia just getting sick of Zeus's bullshit. And like as she's leaving, hands Prometheus the fire and says, "Go on, <laughs> do it." Oh, I, I dare you. I like that. I feel like that's canon in my head now. That's great. Yeah, yeah. I just it's because as a as a as a fiction writer, you kind of if you can find a way to justify it, especially with a goddess like Hestia, because there's not a lot out there yeah, about you her. You can justify anything about her. <laughs> basically yeah because there isn't so much yeah. out there about her you can just take it and go what if i just do 
this. <laughs> I love that. I like it. I mean, it takes power away from Prometheus, gives it to a woman. That's A+. plus. But also just that she was kind of like, nah, fuck you. Like, here you go. <laughs> I feel like she's far more... I wish, like you said, we had the stories. Yeah. But we don't have any of the stories of the matriarchs. We just have to excavate what we do have. And... Um, what we do have is a lot of patriarchal stories told by men, retold by men, and then translated also majority by men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really nice to have like Emily Wilson's translation <laughs> because it switched everything around, didn't it? It absolutely did. I I love that translation so much, and I know she's working on the Iliad, and I'm excited for it. And I just think what's really funny is that you see you've shared a few reviews that you get sometimes <laughs> of the show. And like there are men in the comments or in the reviews were just like, she seems to hate men. And I'm like, she's just telling the stories as they're written. Like, I'm sorry men come off badly. Maybe they should have behaved better. (laughs) That's the thing. Every time I get reviews like that, I'm like, so what I say is rape is bad. And what you hear is she hates all men. (laughs) And I just think, you know, you are telling on yourself. You are really, really telling on yourself. It makes me laugh so much. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it's it's hilarious and horrifying. But I also, I always, I love sharing those ones. The ones that are just so absurd and so obviously based in misogyny. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I've literally never once implied that all men are bad or that I hate all men it's the not all men thing obviously you know it's that yeah yeah it's that like men they can recognize what they have done in the things they hear and therefore they think you're blaming all men and i'm like well then it's because you've done something shitty yeah that's a you problem yeah like you're recognizing (laughs) something shitty like i mean it's the same thing with like white people who can't handle criticism of white people you know not all white people like no white people are by and large really awful colonialism is on us like it's the same fucking thing and 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 if you can't recognize that then it just means you're you're like identifying in it with it in this way that you can't wrap your head around yeah absolutely oh my god thank you for saying this because it does I, you know, I did a performance of, of Great Goddesses a while back, um, and I specifically chose poems about Zeus, you know, like the, the hero poem, Hero Invented the Rain poem. I, I wrote, like, there were, like, a few few poems I chose, and I guess both Zeus and Poseidon come off quite badly. They're bad. They're bad. Because It's not you. Because they do bad it's things. It's not just exactly. you. Like, Poseidon is the secret worst. Oh, he is. He's worse than Zeus in many ways. Like in many ways. And he gets away with it. I don't understand why. But but yeah, there, there was this man in the audience at the end of my show when I said, you know, um, any questions and answers, I'm like open to any. Which is always a mistake. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, dangerous. But, but this guy is like, I have one. Why do you hate men so much? In a crowd. Like usually they, oh they you know, try to hide it or something. But he was a white man, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, he just he just sat and stood up and he was just like, Why do you hate men so much? And I was like, I'm literally talking about the Greek gods and I talk very two about two very specific Greek gods were not good in this book. Um and in the poems which I chose to read. Where did you get yeah. oh I hate all men when you heard that? Um, because it's, if you identify that much with Zeus and Poseidon, I hate to yeah. tell you, 
Yeah. But the problem's you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and later on, he bought he bought two copies of Great Goddesses for his daughters. Mm. And he told the lady who was organizing the event because she wouldn't really let him come to talk to me again because she was like, oh God, like what's going to happen? Bless her for trying to protect yeah. me, basically. But um, he basically said he's going through a divorce and maybe like he just kind of blew up a little bit because he thought he took, he, he took it very personally. And huh. I looked at that and I was like, these are fictional stories. Yeah. How do you like come for a Greek mythology thing and think that Zeus or Poseidon were going to come out well in that? Like, I'm sorry yeah. he's going through a divorce. That must be horribly painful. But attacking a female author for... <laughs> I'm going through a divorce, yeah. so I decided to like attack the first woman who talked badly about... Yeah. <laughs> about rapists. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, it's all you and I do is literally tell it like it is. Yeah. And, and men get furious so angry (laughs) yeah it's baffling it's really baffling i mean and i think that it's so important that we do tell the versions like that Mm. because like it is not a feminist interpretation to say that zeus and poseidon were rapists that's not feminism certain aspects of what i think both of us do is feminism but that is not it's a simple recitation of the stories oh, while yeah. using accurate terminology. And the key is accurate terminology. We're not saying carried off or wrapped away, you know, it's, yeah, it's just such a, it's such a bizarre thing. The way people hold on to these ideas. So bizarre, but it speaks a lot about rape culture today, isn't it? Like, oh, d- absolutely. And how intrinsically tied up with masculinity it is like the concept of masculinity and the concept of, of rape culture and how closely they intersect with each other. Uh, we're not even going to get into like how homoerotic like straight man culture is because that will really <laughs> trigger people. But you can go looking into it and it's like I've been having so many conversations with like my younger friends you know who are who who really started getting into like feminist theory and learning about it and like so many of them ask me this question they're like do you think straight men like women like do you think they actually (laughs) like women and I'm like why would you say that she's and my friends would say you know like the amount of men that we've dated who seem to be dating us but like they will ditch us for the boys. They will go out with the boys. They will make fun of us in front of the boys, but they will sleep with us. I find that really interesting. Like they 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 start to veer down that road. It's like, do you even like women, or do you just like sleeping with women? That's like, <laughs> well, and it's it's like predatory nature is is so wrapped up in straight man culture. Mm. It just like that predatory talk and actions and all these different things it's so yeah it's it's such a dark and weird thing <laughs> it's it's all but very I, dark and weird you're right <laughs> it is and i i always come back to that whole like existence really like of straight you cis i should say cisgendered straight men yeah cisgendered straight men sorry yeah but no I know and I, I tried to I often try to say that earlier but it, you know I think I think that's obvious when we're talking about these things especially because what I'm going to say is I always come back to this when I hear these nonsensical ideas of of trans people being threatening to anyone what? and it's like do you know who is the threat it's cisgendered men oh, primarily yeah. cisgendered white men yeah they absolutely. are the threat 
and and the idea that anyone can convince me that any kind of that there's any kind of real threat in trans people living their fucking lives like they need to it's just beyond me it's so crazy you know it's so nice to talk about this because transphobia is one of the 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 things that is making me most nervous about this country right now you're yes britain is terrifying right now oh my god the way they treat trans people in this country is horrifying it is horror it scares the crap out of me because this is the country of like where they had basically made it like illegal for years and years for any kind of material about being gay or um you know bi or anything could even exist like you're not you weren't allowed to teach it in schools it wasn't allowed to exist basically so if you um if you were gay in this country, you really struggled. Like they basically punished their war hero, Alan Turing, in this country by chemically oh, castrating yeah. him. Like, and that that was the man that won them the war, right? He was the guy who broke the code that won them the war. That's how yeah. they treat their war heroes for being gay. Now it's turned onto trans people and the way that they're treating. I'm so worried for my visible trans friends. Because the amount of transphobia online, like if I ever say anything pro-trans online, the amount of shit I get, and like I'm called a misogynist, which is laughable, which is like... (laughs) Yeah, I know. Well, yeah, it's like you often, you have these TERFs coming in and saying that you're not a feminist because you're supporting trans people. And it's like, I don't think you fucking know what the word means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's It's such a marginalized community and it is infinitely hard to be trans in a world that constantly rejects you for being trans and for just living your most honest truth in the body that feels most comfortable to you. It is so hard. And like nobody wants to put themselves in their shoes and see what's going on. It's so frustrating and it's so annoying like, and you can't talk sense to these people. You can't sit and talk sense no. to herbs. It's impossible. They're yeah. just there sitting over there going, no, but, but trans people are taking women's places. And I'm just like, yeah. what? It, How do you even come to that? Yeah. Like, where, where, does, where has that even come from? Like, how is your womanhood being threatened by a trans woman? I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> And they'll find that single anecdote of one thing happening and yeah. being, and, and it's like, well, this is what's happening. You're like, no, that you can't use that as a all trans people thing. Like yeah. you can't, you fiz- it's yeah, it's, it's horrifying. Yeah, these are the same people who will say, will get very upset if you say all women are like this, or all cis yeah. women are like this. And you, you're like, well, if you have a problem with that, why don't you have a problem with using the all trans people are like, this? it's just, it's such a weird mentality. And it's like, you are on the wrong side of history is what I keep wanting to say to them. Oh, absolutely. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous. And I think that's what's so important and often not brought up quite as loudly is like this kind of rhetoric is dangerous. Like it's going to cost people their lives. It, it, and it has. It has. And it has. People. Yeah, exactly. It's it's this. And yeah. it's also like, you know, I, my last straw with these people where I get to the point with turfs where I'm just like, you really don't get it, especially when they're from the queer community when you see people mm, within yes. the queer community like yeah. the anti-trans i i literally sit over there and i go it wasn't so long ago when people and it's still happening where people yeah. think that you should not have the same rights as a straight person does that you shouldn't exist 
and now you're doing it to another community. How dare you? Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, it's so beyond. It really yeah. disturbs me. It really disturbs me because as a, you know, I, I grew up in a country where being queer, um, it was absolutely not only a political thing, it was an illegal thing. It was only in 2018 that we got rid of the article that was used to stigmatize the entire queer community in India. And growing up as a bisexual woman, you couldn't, you didn't have anyone to talk to about it. You didn't want, you couldn't talk to anyone about it yeah. because you would be stigmatized for it, but you could also be arrested for it. Growing up with that and seeing something like that happen to another community, like their rights of being like, especially like the medical rights being taken away from trans children. Yes. That really, I sat and I cried for hours like after that happened because it is, how can you do that to trans kids? How can you, yeah. like how terror, why are you terrorizing children? Yeah. Why are you terrorizing like, people but children? Why, why children? Yeah. What, what kind of benefit does it give to anyone else to take? Like it's just, it, it you can't explain it. It's all just based in, just complete hatred it's just pointless pointless hate it's fascist it's fascist you're yeah. taking away the medical rights of a community based off anything their sexuality their religion their you know race that's fascism that's mm -hmm. literally the definition of it like their their orientation you know what gender they identify as you're taking the rights away of an entire community that identifies a certain way what other descriptors there for that yeah and that's what's really hard to explain because people are like, no, it's not fascism. Show me how it's not. <laughs> yeah. And all these ancient, ancient stories that we read in ancient cultures that we read about, they, a lot of them are a lot more sexually liberated than we are today. Mm -hmm. My favorite stories are all the, the, the volume, at least in Greek mythology alone, where they understood trans people and they told stories that basically it, it was like the gods, you know, fixed them. Mm -hmm. Like this person was born a man, but she knew she was really a woman. And so a god made her a woman. Yeah. And I think it's so beautiful and also shows that they fully understand, understood the concept of being transgender absolutely and they were like cool well we get it um like clearly you're not in the right body and so when you're not in the right body like the only thing that can solve it is a god perfect yeah, here you yeah. go you know yeah and yeah. they understood it in a way that no one or that that is so hard to get across to people now where it's just mm -hmm. like they were born in the wrong body mm -hmm. i don't know how else to phrase it mm -hmm. you know like the, the ancient Greeks got it. Why can't we? Well, it's the same with Hinduism. Like all of our mm. main three gods, the Trimurti, all had female forms as well. Mm. So they had their masculine forms and then they also had their feminine forms. And Vishnu, Vishnu's feminine form is one of the most well-known. That's Mohini. And he actually went and had children in that form with like other male gods. And huh. I find that really interesting. Like there's so many, like sexuality is so fluid in like the ancient Hindu scriptures that you read and you're looking at that and you're like, like one of my favorite characters from uh, the girl and the goddess was one of the major characters in the Mahabharata and his name is Shikhandi. And Shikhandi was, you know, born in the wrong body originally. He was hmm. born female, like, but he basically over the story becomes like goes into what his natural body is, which is male. 
And he's one of the most powerful and most brilliant warriors in the Mahabharata. This trans man. That's, yeah, that's amazing. That's so cool. And I looked at that yeah. and I'm like, how do our ancient scriptures get it? But well, we don't. Well, yeah. How, how have we gone this far backward? I don't understand. Like it just, it because progress, we are supposed to be progressive, right? We're supposed to be living in one of the best times in history or whatever, but we don't seem to understand sexuality or gender or orientation or the difference between sex and gender. We don't understand those basic things as a whole. Yeah. 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 And I think, yeah, the, the way people can communicate now too over the internet and everything just means that all those ideals can become like so much more dangerous and, mm. and visceral and loud. And yeah. Cause yeah. I mean, certainly in the past, like couple of hundred years, it's been the same, but mm. you couldn't scream about it to everyone mm. so mm. easily. Oh yeah. Yeah. The last um, 10 years has been, it's been a revelation, hasn't it? And in, in just how bigoted even the people you, I swear it's been like so many heartbreaks. And for me, um, the, the, the anti-trans rhetoric in this country has been so scary because I know people like, and I've, I've seen people who I used to respect until they turned around and they said something horribly transphobic. And like, I'm yeah. just like, I can't, I can't respect you or know you anymore. Like, I can't. Yeah, it's and it's because it's dangerous. I'm constantly dealing with the fact that at the beginning of the podcast, I praise J.K. Rowling because she didn't say that stuff. Mm -hmm. She it wasn't either. She didn't think it or she just didn't say it. Mm -hmm. But when I was recording those episodes, it wasn't a thing. No, it wasn't. And the thing about podcasts is that they live on always and that's fine. But people really don't like look at what they're listening to Mm. so they don't look and see like hey maybe this woman recorded this before jk rowling was a horrifying turf yeah and so every once in a while i i always want to like make clear how i feel but then i still have people who like don't follow me on social or like i've (laughs) said it in later episodes but i can't guarantee they're gonna hear it and Mm. Uh, the number of people that i'll you know i'll post something they're like oh my god thank god i thought you were a turf or somebody yeah left me a review recently that actually bothered me because it was like this is this podcast is great she's really awesome she has really awesome feminism except for the except for praising the turf and i'm like well you just said all those nice things about me mm. and my feminism and maybe just mm. maybe mm. the turf wasn't a turf when i praised her yeah. you know like it, yeah. and maybe take that into consideration before and granted it was a five star review like i'm not complaining yeah. about that but but it bummed me out because they couldn't they couldn't figure it out on their own that yeah. maybe they were listening to something from an earlier time. Some of the top selling children's book authors in this country right now are racist uh, or, or transphobic yeah. even, you know, transphobic. transphobic yeah. Yeah. And you're just looking at that and you're going, so 50 years down the line, I'm hoping 50 years down the line, we, we don't have transphobia. Like I'm hoping, yeah. uh, or if it exists, people are ashamed of it. You know what I mean? And they, 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 they know it's wrong and they aren't so loud and proud about it. Like, Oh my God. 
Hello, I'm just popping in here now from the editing stage of this podcast, in between where this last conversation that I've just cut from and our goodbyes, our conversation continued, it got a little bit more personal and just a bit less relevant to the podcast. So I am not including those sections right now, but what that means is that what you're about to hear are little wrap-up of goodbyes and whatnot does not suit how we just ended that conversation, which was obviously very serious. I also debated ending it on that conversation about transphobia today and transgender issues. Um, I know it's a bit of a downer to an otherwise more upbeat episode, but I wanted to make sure it stayed in there because I think it's important to talk about these issues as much as possible. I mean, I know, you know, we're not experts on the subject, but at the same time, I think it's important to voice these feelings and thoughts around it as well as talking openly about how horrific transphobia is, how dangerous, all of that. So I wanted to make sure that it didn't get cut out. And so with that explanation, you're going to return to me from a later time in our conversation where I am mid-laugh. This has been so much fun. I'm so thrilled that we got to talk about your book, Great Goddesses, but also your other book, The Girl and the Goddess. And... <laughs> that's a novel in verse. It's a really interesting format. So yeah. Yes, that's fascinating. I'll have to pick that one up too. But <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Such a fascinating episode, <laughs> chat, everything. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to do this with me. I'm still so thrilled. I agree. I agree. I'm thrilled that we have met in this way. Oh, nerds, thank you all so much for listening. I hope you appreciate the kind of little little bits of choppiness there because every time it got a little choppy, it was just because she and I went on to talk about so much. Basically, we're friends now. It was amazing. Um, I'm so incredibly thrilled that I got to talk to Nikita all about these fascinating topics, really go into things that I don't often look at or I wish I could, but it needs that kind of conversational tone. So I'm just thrilled that we had the opportunity to record this episode and I absolutely hope to have her on again because I think that these are conversations that need to be had and I'm thrilled to be able to share it with you all today. So I really hope you all enjoyed this episode and thank you all so much for listening. Also, we talked for two straight hours and and I ended up forgetting to ask her what she might have wanted to plug or where you can follow her. So I just recommend you buy all of her books and you find Nikita Gill on whatever your social media of choice is. She is fancy and verified and easy to find. Highly recommend. She posts her poetry on her Instagram and has an incredible Twitter account. So please follow her in both of those places if you are not already. So I always say thank you to you guys, but today I'm giving kind of an extra big thank you because I every once in a while get to kind of look around and see what my life has become from this podcast. And obviously it is all because of you nerds who come here twice a week to listen to me either ramble on by myself about these incredible stories or talk to incredible people like Nikita Gill amongst all of the other incredible authors and classicists and just specialists that I've talked to recently. It's kind of mind-blowing and I'm so incredibly grateful to all of you for it. So thank you all so much. You are all magnificent. I am Liv and I love this shit.
Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Thursday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com.